So this morning we turn to the book of Joel, prophecy of Joel. And uh, Joel is a, a flashback in terms of how we're going through the Bible. Um, Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah were all prophets who spoke about the era known as the exile. And uh, <clears throat> that's way up here, way down here in time. But then you go to Joel and you're backing up from Jeremiah several hundred years. So like Amos, we're back. Amos, remember from last week, was with the northern kingdom. He was speaking to the 10 tribes that were wealthy on the north and warning them of an end that's coming. And then Joel is in the south. Joel, we think, we don't know for certain, and Calvin says it's probably not worth spending much time on it, but there are enemies that are discussed in Joel or that are threatened of, of, the, of the kingdom of Judah. So Joel speaks about these kingdoms coming against you, and one of them is the Sidonians. And, the, and so that helps to center it a little bit in time, we think. The other indication is that he talks about, he doesn't mention <coughs> in his prophecy the princes or the king, but he talks about the elders and the priests leading the people. And that is uh, uh, an indication that kind of fits with a, uh, a particular period and a particular king. Um, can you think of who it might be that they'd be talking about the elders and the priests in their leadership rather than the king? Well, yeah, this is a hard question. I, I, but there was a period in the life of Israel when the, when the king was not actually capable of leading. There are a couple of periods, actually, but one in particular, when the leadership was carried on by priests and uh, elders of the people. Can you, can you remember who that would have been? Not Ahab. Uh, you're close. Joash. Remember Joash, who uh, was, was, was king at very young, but the priest led and for him. And so this is often put or thought to be during the, the time of Joash. So you can see Joel. Well, no, you can't see, can you? Um, maybe on this one, you can, nah, I don't think that's, this one does it either, does it? So we think it's probably back during that period when Joash was a young man. Now, how many of you have read Joel in recent days? At least in the last year. Okay, you got to, you, you know, it's a, it's a very small book. You can read it in 15, 20 minutes. 
Um, Nate's going to this morning be preaching on a passage from Joel. Why? Why is, why is Nate going to be preaching on Joel this morning? Can anyone? Because Peter quotes it in his sermon on Acts and says, look, this is what's happening, right? So it's a quotation from Joel giving you the... <coughs> Simeon. Yeah. Ah, shoot. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, giving you the, uh, the understanding that these prophecies... I don't know, what, what, what do we say they're like? A boomerang or a skipping stone in a, a pond? You know, where, um, where you throw the, the, uh, the stone and it goes and it hits and then it can hit again. You ever skipped a stone <laughs> off a rock and then had it that's out in the water and, but had it continue, you see a small rock in the water? And that's your target, but then it skitters a few more times across the water behind it. You know, what's that? No? You said no? <laughs> um, that's one of the fun, you know, if you've got a flat rock out of ways, you can throw it and hit the rock, and then it'll keep on. That's kind of like prophecy. There's one distinct target, usually, in, in time, but then it skitters on, and it, it keeps on bouncing and hitting, hitting another target and another target as it goes. So you see that with Joel. Book of Joel is by a man whose name is Joel, son of Pethuel. And that's all we're told. We're not even told that he was to a certain kingdom, are we? And I'm asking you, but if you haven't read it recently, you won't be aware of that. It's not stated that he's, he went to here or he was from here. Vir virtually nothing about him. So that's why Calvin says, let's not try and be too precise because the lessons in Joel are lessons that should reverberate and skip into our very day. The, there are lessons from Joel that are for us, just and, and clearly for us. Because Joel is about the, the judgment of God on the nation of Israel, or on the nation of Judah, but God's people. And yet... It's not a book that you, you, you wonder about the, the prophet. Did he think that he was only speaking to one group of people in one set of, in one particular era in time, you know? Did he know that one day Peter would be quoting him? Well, he didn't know Peter was going to exist, did he? You know? You, you think about it and like Moses, writing and, and working, and the New Testament tells us that the rock that accompanied Israel as it was coming out of Egypt was what? The rock that accompanied them was Christ. Yeah, Jesus. So Jesus was with Moses. Jesus inspired Moses. Jesus was the end towards which Moses and the Exodus was aiming, right? Moses is, is called in the Old Testament the prophet. He's the prophet. But you wonder, did Moses have a clear view of what he was foretelling and where the system of laws that God gave him on top of Mount Sinai, where it was going to terminate or where at least its greatest fulfillment was going to come into being? 
I don't know. You know, these men, the, what are we told in Hebrews about the, the saints of old? All these things happened, we're told in Hebrews, for us. And that the people of old longed to look into these things, longed to know these things, right? Like the angels. But it was hidden from them. So there is a, a certain sense in which you sitting in the church of Jesus Christ this morning are the fulfillment of all the prophecies of all time. And you think you're just a minuscule person going about your little way in the midst of a big, bad world. You understand what I'm saying? You have your little worries. You have your, if you're, if you're a homeowner, a lawn that needs to be cared for. You have all the things you're doing. And, and you have no picture of your life <clears throat> being the fulfillment of e kind of eternal truths spoken thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago. God was speaking about you through a man named Joel. But that's very clearly what's going on in this book. You have a purpose that was foreseen by God. You are today, the, uh, look, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the book of Job very clearly states that, that, that the Israel, forgive me, I'm, I'm scratching my head like I got lice. I, I don't have lice, but I, I do itch. <laughs> um, um, the, 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 the book of Joel makes it very clear that Zion is the city of God and it's not just Jerusalem because Jerusalem's going down, Joel makes clear. And yet Zion is where things, things come. He says that the Lord will pour out his spirit on whom? Ah, come on. Hirely. Who? Uh, Jake, uh, no, no. Why is it I can't come up with names? All people, All people right? Come on. Does, does that not resonate in you that the Lord will pour out his spirit on all people? What is all people? Why is this a, an important thing or a, a new thing? That in the last days, the Lord will pour out his, his spirit on all people. What's, what does it imply? It implies some kind of confined boundary before the last days, right? Okay, so where does the expansion take place that Joel is telling about? You know, let's just name one area of expansion. We could go through a whole bunch. And, uh, but what, what kind of expansion takes place in the last days with the Spirit of God? What does all people connote? What does it indicate that was not true before the last days? Gentiles. What's that? Gentiles, Gentiles right? Okay, so, so we are in the midst of a, a war over in the East, and many American Christians are saying the Jews are the people of God, right? Right? And, and we have to stand with the people of God. But what does the Bible say? Yes, um, 
it's, it says, I mean, you can read the New Testament. Um, what book was I just, it's in, uh, it was either in Jude or Revelation, I think it was in Jude I was reading, and it says that, that the people of Israel are not Jews. The, pe the, the people who do not worship Jesus, they are not Jews, but the, the synagogue of Satan, the synagogue of Satan. The Bible calls the Jews who will not worship Jesus Christ, not Jews, but the synagogue of Satan. Now, our hope must be that God, and is from Romans 13, that God is going to work to bring Jews back into his kingdom and his vine. But this idea that the Jews are today the special people of God is flatly contradicted by all of Scripture, which says the real Israel is those of faith. The sons of Abraham are those who love and worship Jesus Christ. So when you read these prophecies that talk about the Zion of God, you know, in the last days it will be written. This one, this is the people of God. The, the psalmist writes, is it Psalm 67? It'll be written, this one was born in what? Zion, all right? And so you have on your birth certificate born where? And it's important to you today. Ohio, Michigan, some of you, Pennsylvania. But in a greater way, it's, it's a statement that you are what? What? A citizen of the United States, right? And I recently saw a luggage tag that you could get and put on your luggage. There's a big American flag on one side. And I thought, hot dog. When I'm in, when I'm in Jordan and Turkey, I'm not putting the big American flag on my luggage, right? <laughs> and then I thought, but you know, you don't put a big tag on your luggage shouting, I'm an American, unless you're kind of stupid, traveling, especially in areas like, well, and anywhere. <coughs> but why do you not? And the reason you don't is that it is significant that you're an American. Right? It is significant. It, it means something all over the world. People would like to be an American, right? All over the world, people define you as privileged, wealthy. They hate you at times. I mean, for good reason. I mean, America has done terrible things all over the world. But they hate you because of the power that comes with being an American, the power, the wealth of our country. You look at our country, and its per capita income puts it in. That means the, if you divide the gross national product up between all 360 million people of us, it comes out to, does anyone know the current figures? Okay, well, it comes out to something like 67, 70, 75, somewhere in that region, 75,000 per person, right? Per capita gross national product. There are about six, eight, ten, however you measure it, countries that are above us. What are they? Uh, it, may be, it may be Dubai, but there's, one, there's several that are much more reliably ahead of us. There's some of them there, but 
Can you think of the ones that would be? Singapore. What? Singapore is always there. What else? Hong Kong. Hong Kong but Hong Kong is now put in with China. Um, Taiwan. No, not Taiwan. Taiwan's about 40. What? Switzerland. Switzerland. Switzerland is the biggest of them with about 7 million people. Okay, and it's at like 90,000 per person, per capita. Okay, I, I, what I, Norway, Singapore, Switzerland, probably Dubai, UAE, United Arab Emirates, you know. You take every country in the world that has a higher gross national product than the United States and you lump them together and you have a, a, one country that's about the size of Ohio. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's how many people have a higher standard of living in this world than you do, than we do. Am I making sense? The rest of the world goes down. Now, that's America. It's significant to be an American. You, as a child of God, have every promise of God. And you really need to renounce this American specialism, you know, and say, no, I'm not an American. I don't define myself by my wealth or by the power of my country. I define myself against that by the power of God because you must choose what you are. And these promises are to you as a, as a child of America. It was not a bad time in Israel or in Judah at this time of Joel. Nor was it a bad time in the northern kingdom to the extent that we don't know exactly when or where. <coughs> Joel was prophesying. It's probably interesting to realize that as Joel is going in the, in the southern kingdom, as he's prophesying this brief prophecy, and we don't know anything more about him than that he did it, there's a, a famous prophet prophesying in the north, one of the greatest men of scripture, a man who is, has always stood out in my mind as one of the most interesting men in scripture because, because he asks because he's this, the student of a prophet. The prophets were taught by other prophets. It wasn't that prophecy couldn't be taught. It needed teaching and the Spirit of God to be it. So there were schools of the prophets in the Old Testament, right? And this man was a student of a prophet who was going in the northern kingdom. But when that prophet died, he said, I like the, what do you want? And the younger prophet said to the older prophet, it was Elijah, the older prophet, Elisha, the younger prophet. The older prophet said, what would you like? The younger prophet said, it's kind of like what, what Solomon said when God's kingdom and said, what do you want, right? What did the younger prophet say he wanted? He wanted a double portion of what? Of the spirit of the older prophet. Now, you know the power of the older prophet, Elijah, was a man like us, and he prayed, and for many, many days, for years, it did not rain. And then he prayed again, and it rained. And we have to believe that Elijah did these things, in a sense, under his own initiative. Not that he was commanded by God, but he went to God and said, God, establish your word through me. I pray that I, you will establish it. And so he tells the king, Remember at the end, he says, the rain is going to fall. Remember that? He goes to Ahab and says, the rain is going to fall. But are there clouds on the horizon? No. So he sends his servant. Was it Gehazi who was his servant? 
up to the top of the hill. And it says, look, see if there's a cloud. And no cloud. And it sends him back and back. Finally says, a cloud as small as your hand. Elijah was commanding the weather through prayer to God. This is the spirit of Elijah. We sang that song years ago. Remember that? There was that song called The Spirit of Elijah. Wasn't it The Spirit of Elijah? It was kind of a, I like that song. Um, and so Elijah prays and he says, or he asks when he's, when he's given the chance. He says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Are there indications that that happens? If you read through the life of Elisha, his miracles seem to be, didn't Elisha raise two from the dead? Didn't he, and it may have been, that was it on his, was it in his tomb that the, the body was thrown and it got up and walked? What? Yeah, and so even his bones have power, you know? So we have a, a picture in the north, up north, of the power of God. But in the south, we have Joel, this anonymous prophet who's not, no acts are known, nothing. But he's speaking to you today, and he's saying there's coming a great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he <clears throat> speaks of that day as a day that's going to be a day and this is one of those points where we don't know whether the prophecy is using a metaphor from the past, forecasting something that's about to happen. You know, we, we just don't know. We, don't, we weren't alive back then. There's no record. This comes to us out of nowhere. But it's a day of what? Whenever you're asked, what was the day of? A day of Reckoning, yeah, but it's a specific type of reckoning that God's going to send on Israel that Joel speaks about. What is it? The, the, come on, guys, what's going to happen? Or what has just happened? We don't know if it's something that's happening, something that did happen, or if it's a metaphor. But what is the metaphor of or the thing that has happened? Okay, what is it? Locust, which is a form of a grasshopper, right? So it's going to be the day of the Lord, which is going to be a dreadful day of locusts. Now, that doesn't look very dreadful, does it? In fact, the, uh, the Persians used to mock the, the Arabs by calling them locust eaters. <laughs> because the Arabs would eat, and probably still do eat in some areas, locusts, right? And the Persians looked down on them. locusts. But there is a phenomenon, and it's not, as I've looked it up, I was just looking this up last night. Uh, it's, it's not like I thought, like every seven years the cicada comes or something like that, right? Is it seven? I don't know, but it's weird. Every 17 years? Are you the smartest, Hirely? I think you must be. <laughs> Except when you're the stupidest. I've heard about those times too, right? <laughs> um, so... So every 17 years, the, the, the locusts come out or something like that. Oh, your parents are back there now. No, you're the best looking hire. Like, that's all you are. <laughs> uh, every 17 years, the locusts come. I don't know if that's actually true, but it's sort of lore that they come every 17 years. 
uh, or the cicadas. The locusts are supposed to have come at uh, certain intervals, but they really don't. What happens is that they, they go into a, a, um, a mode when it's dry of sort of low activity and what do they call it? Oh, it's the weirdest word. Uh, low, low amorousness. I think that's the word amorous. No, something like that. Low, uh, low love. I don't know. It's something like that. They word. And then when there's uh, a a period of of plenty and rain and and real fertility for the land, they they come. They they sort of like get hyper amorous. I think that's the word they use. Hyper amorous. They become very social. And they start reproducing like mad. And so, and when they're reproducing like mad, they swarm. And vast swarms, they said that in, <coughs> locusts have kind of <coughs> disappeared <coughs> from the United States. The, they sort of went extinct because of the, 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 uh, the, uh, the farming of valleys in the Rockies where they used to, the valley regions where the locusts were not. And so the last big swarm was like a three or four state swarm in the late 1800s, 1890s. And they said that it was something like, they estimated like 10 trillion locusts. And when they died, it was like 50 million pounds of locusts dead. Well, that's, I, that, you know, you put all that land together, that's probably not as much as it sounds like. But um, when the locusts swarm, this is, this is, that's what it looks like. The sky is just darkened by locusts, you know? And Joel says there's going to be a locust swarm. Back in the early 1900s, locusts have become controlled by insecticides and things, so they're not as prevalent as a thing. But... Back in the, in the 1910s, I think it was, maybe the early 19, the decade before that, there was a locust swarm that went across um, up in here, in Syria, around in um, Lebanon, down in here, a, a huge locust swarm. And they say that um, it led to a three-year famine in the northern Palatinate, Palestine, a three-year famine where they estimate 200 to 300,000 people died of famine because of the locusts. So that is what Book of Joel says. And he says, listen, all inhabitants of the land, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's day? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion. It has the fangs of a lioness. It's made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. 
In other words, wail like a young woman who has seen her husband die before she's even gotten to marry him, the guy that she loved. Um, because the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. You will notice as you read the prophets, and it's very, very prevalent in, in Joel, that when the people of God are not following God, <clears throat> whether it's effect, whether it's cause, the, the fruitfulness of their lives and their land are wrecked. The land is not fruitful. Their lives are not fruitful. Both the virgin does not marry, but the husband-to-be dies. And the land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. There is a lack of fruitfulness. It is the judgment of God in that it is often the choice of sinners to pursue fruitless lives. Right? Where the fruit that God has promised and made us to enjoy forever. And is there anything in life that is more wonderful than to be fruitful? You understand what I mean? <clears throat> you think God intends fruitfulness to be pleasurable to us and full of joy? What's the, the most powerful and beautiful uh, tactile sensation on earth? Well, you're going to say it's sex, but it's not, is it? The, the most, I mean, try and tell that to a 20-year-old. But, um, but the most pleasurable and powerful and beautiful tactile touch sensation is, is a new baby, right? Is there anything like holding a, a little baby and nestling up with a baby, you know? <laughs> You may say, well, yeah, what produces the baby? But that's a moment. This is a lifetime of enjoying a child, of this child. And so God has surrounded fruitfulness with pleasure. The flowers are the means of propagation of the plant, but they're beautiful. They smell. There's... God intends for fruitfulness to be the, the greatest joy of life. And that's why at the harvest, the people bring their foods and they have wine and they drink to celebrate and don't think it's not alcoholic wine. You know, God enjoys his people enjoying his fruitfulness, the fruitfulness he's given them. But these people have chosen a course that's against fruitfulness, which is, and, and so, the, the, the book goes on and says there's a great day of reckoning. And <clears throat> this day of the Lord, the locusts, whether they are actual or not, okay, whether this is a, a picture or a reality that they've gone through or are going through or will go through, it portends something. It points to something bigger than it, which is that God is going to send an invasion on his people. So just as the locusts have invaded, there is going to be an invasion. Uh, blow a trumpet in Zion, chapter 2, and sound. There's only three chapters. 
Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And so this is a day that follows the locusts, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. Never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations of fire. Now it's not locusts, it's people coming. A fire consumes before them, behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses. So they run with a noise as of chariots. They leap on top uh, the tops of the mountains like the crackling of flame of fire consuming the stubble like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They don't break ranks. They rush. The sun and moon grow dark. Whoa, sun and moon grow dark. I mean, and now we understand that God is is foretelling a day that is in the future and it's merging with another day when the sun and moon grow dark. Where do we find that elsewhere in the Bible? Ecclesiastes. Okay, that's the, but there it's sort of a metaphor of our decline, right? But where do we find that also, that the sun and moon are darkened? In the last days, you know, and in Revelation, we see these things. So the darkening of sight, the sun and moon, the darkening of sight is a feature of God's judgment. So God says to you, you're blind, be blind. You've chosen blindness, I give you darkness, right? You've chosen to be unfruitful, I give you unfruitfulness. What you choose I give you and I give it to you tenfold. I give you what you want. And so there's a darkness that comes. A great army I've sent among you. <clears throat> but God then says in chapter two, they'll cry among the peoples. Why should among the, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and don't make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the peoples say, where is their God? Then the Lord. Now let me, let me back up a moment and say, this day has come. It's been a day of devastation. The prophet says, A famous verse. There's a lot of New Testament in uh, references to Joel. And yet, even now, this is 2.12, declares the Lord, this great army is coming, this great destruction, this darkness. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. Why does he say rend your heart and not your garments? Why does he specifically say do not rend your garments but your heart? What does it indicate? <clears throat> 
Yes, Bethany. It's not, yeah, exactly. It's not a show. We can make a show of sorrow. We do that often, don't we? But what God says is, all right, I'm coming down. At this point, I know you. I know who you are. I know what you've done. We can't pretend anymore. If you want to see my goodness and you want relief from, from the lack of fruitfulness and the devastation that's coming, then rend your heart and not your garments. Don't walk around saying, woe is me, woe is me. Who is the character in, in Dickens? Uriah Heep. Have you heard of Uriah Heep? The old band, Uriah Heep was a character in Dickens, in one of the Dickens novels. What was the novel he was in? David Copperfield. David Copperfield. What did he do? He was mischievous, but he was like, oh, I'm a bad person. He really didn't believe it. He, he, full of sorrow, full of repentance, but he didn't really mean it. He just made a show of it. God says, don't be your eye heap. You know? Rend your heart and not your garments. Be sad. Now, it's a hard message to bring to a, a group of people whose average age is, what is the average age in this room? It's pretty young. What do you think the average age is in here? Who's the youngest one in here? What? Yeah, there's, oh yeah. Marcus, he's the youngest, right? Yeah. So the average age is 30 and to say you should be rending your heart. But the Bible frequently, frequently commends to us grief, doesn't it? It says that... Um, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when hard things happen. The wisdom is found in the, what is the, what is the psalm? Mario, help me. In the, in the house of, wisdom is found in the house of mourning. Wisdom is found in the house of mourning. Have you grieved anything in your young life? Or is your goal to avoid grief, you know? When my brother died at 19, he was, he was basically engaged to a young woman. <clears throat> Never married. Her life was a life of grief. She sort of spiraled off the, the rails. And she would come to our house for the next decade after Joe died at Christmas and times. But she became a teacher out in California. Eventually, in her 30s, married a guy. It was a horrible marriage. And uh, started drinking and became a terrible alcoholic. And, and then got thrown in jail because she drank drunk. She drove drunk so many times. Got, spent a couple of years in jail. Got out and then died a tragic death in her 40s or 50s. Grief can be debilitating. And Janie, uh, my brother's 
girlfriend. Wallowed in grief and did not turn to God the way we so wanted. We prayed for her all the time as a family when I was a kid. Um, and I visited her when I was an intern out in California. But years later. But don't run from grief if you're young. Because grief is going to come. And God intends it to give you a sobriety and a seriousness that will make you truly fruitful and happy. The path to happiness runs through godly grief, you know, realizing that God is angry with you at times, recognizing that God is, is, has said, I won't, I'm not going to work with you forever, you know, gaining a sense of fear and grief is essential to the Christian life. And in America today, where our per capita income makes the wealth of the world look like pygmies, there's not a great valuing of grief and sorrow. But there's coming a great and mighty day of the Lord, and it's going to strike America. Perhaps America first. Why? Because as Joel says, judgment begins with what? He doesn't exactly say this, but it's one of the messages from Joel that's carried over into the New Testament. Judgment with God begins where? Not with the Sidonians and the Phoenicians and the people who are up north who are coming down and who are Israel's enemies at this, or Judah's enemies at this time. But where does God's judgment begin? Always. It begins with the house of God. Judgment begins, thank you, with the house of God. And is there a nation on earth that has been more filled with the, the, the Spirit of God over the last two centuries than America? More blessed, right? I'm not claiming American exceptionalism at this point. I want nothing to do with that. I do want us to recognize that America has a heritage and has enjoyed one, and that the wealth and security and peace of America has been the product of a blessing from God and not just because we're great. You know, and that God is a God who, when his people go away from him, sends a spirit and it, re it ricochets back and forth between God and us. We don't want fruitfulness. You know, I won't give you fruitfulness. We don't want fruitfulness. I won't give you this. And this is in millions of areas. It's not just children, which is the ob most obvious and flagrant one, which even Elon Musk can see as a problem from America. You know when Elon Musk says we're in trouble because we don't like having kids that, that you know, God's, God's judgment is becoming pretty apparent, okay? But think of a nation where the church has taught that homosexuality is something that you can't defeat and that you're bound by for the rest of your life. What they're saying is that God is powerless. They're saying you can lead a fruitless life and that's okay with God because God is impotent. You know, everywhere you go in America today, in the church and outside, you have an embrace of impotence and fruitlessness, if I'm making sense. And the great power of God is not present. So the answer is, rend our hearts, turn back to God. And then we have this great promise that after this, 
I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons. And just your sons will prophesy, right? No. I mean, this is one of the expansions. You know, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. No, there are always prophetesses, Huldah in the Old Testament, others as well, right? But the, the promise is, I'm going to give my spirit to everyone. You're living in, you're not living in blessing in America today, all right? You may think your blessings are to be an American and to have this gross domestic product per capita. No. You're living in a time when God has said, I will pour out my spirit on you. And there is nothing that we need to seek more from God as young men and women than that his Holy Spirit rule in us, dwell in us, empower us, that his words we speak that his spirit is on us. And if we have that and we seek this blessing that he says is the blessing of the last days. No eye has seen, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him and who follow him. We must go to Joel. When the Lord, the people gather and they say we repent then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. It will come about after us. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. I will display wonders in the sky and the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. Sun will be turned to darkness, moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will be come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And we want to be among those survivors that the Lord says, you're going to escape on this day when I call the whole world into, into, into judgment. And when I come down, I will have a group. And it's not going to be the Jews. It's going to be the, you know, by DNA, it's going to be the Jews by love for Jesus. Yeah, Mario. What do you think? You don't feel bad? What? I don't have any, I, I, I don't feel responsible. I don't feel bad. I don't feel brokenhearted. I don't feel, uh, I feel, you know, you're asking, I'm the most blessed guy alive. Well, it's hard to say in a sense because I do think that the Christian, this is why I say to those of you who are younger, the Christian life is full of sadness, young. It's good to bear the yoke in your youth, the Bible says, lamentations, right? That, that Take up the yoke and carry it. Take up hard things. Mourn in your youth because if you do, when you get to be Mario's age, what's going to happen? This is, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't seem like it can be. But if you embrace the hard things, saying no to the, the ungodly girlfriend that is very attractive, or what, you know, the, the billion, I, I, I shouldn't even start going down the road of examples. 
When you get to be Mario's age, you're going to be the happiest person on earth because you're going to be living in God's kingdom. You're going to be living in Zion, you know? You're going to know that God has preserved you and that God is loving your children. You're going to have children who are following him. You're going to be having things that happen in your life that are so rich. You, am I making sense, Mario? Yeah, I, 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 yeah. Yep. So I have gotten to know the Lord and I have not felt and I have made myself more. Yep. Miriam Oswald always wants me to do prayer meetings. When I was pastor for years. Do a prayer meeting for our country, David. I mean, I can't tell you how many times she's written me emails. And I, I always say, Miriam, when we were, when I was first at Springfield with you 35 years ago, we had a prayer meeting. It was the worst thing in life. People just sat around and talked about their aching bones. I'll never do it again, Miriam. Okay? No way. You're not getting the prayer meeting out of me with a whole bunch of people. I'm not going to do it. But the reality is, is that I don't want to sit around thinking about bad things. I know. I don't want to do it. I don't want to mourn. And I know it would be a mourning group, you know? I know it. So, I, Mario, I don't, my conscience is guilty because every time I've said no to Miriam, and now I'm getting to be Miriam's age when she started saying this to me, and I'm saying, we should pray. <laughs> Am I making sense? <laughs> and and I try and convince your daughter-in-law that we should be weeping, right? I mean, no, don't laugh. It's not funny, all right? <laughs> you know, how do you do it? You have to commit to seeing the world through God's eyes, I think. Anyway, I love you guys. Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, Max, close us in prayer, would you?